You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Called the book of Judges, and uh, today we're going to meet the most famous of all characters in this book. His name is Samson. So today uh, I'm going to speak about Samson, the superhero, question mark. Samson, the superhero? I guess that would be the way to say it. Uh, And we will look at him for four weeks. This guy gets four chapters in the book of Judges. And today we're we're going to look at him. Samson is traditionally known as one of the heroes of the Bible. In fact, we could say that Samson is a superhero because a superhero is a hero who has superhuman strength or superhuman powers or superhuman abilities. And Samson is known for his superhuman Strength, so we could say he is a superhero, and as absolute proof that he is a superhero, you can actually purchase an action figure of Samson, and this is one that we actually grabbed off the internet. There's more than one of them. There's one where his hair comes off, which I guess then he would lose all it. Well, anyway, you'll have to stick around for that, but this is the Samson action hero. Now, I'm going to make a few comments here. Please If you have Bible action heroes in your home, do not view this as judgment because I think we had them when my kids were little. I don't know, Samson battled Batman. I can't remember who won, but I think we had action heroes. But there's a few concerns I have about this action hero. Uh, Samson was from the Middle East and not Scandinavia. So we can start there. Uh, The whitening of Samson is unbiblical and and, uh, perhaps offensive. Uh, But there he is, uh, blonde Samson, ready for battle in a WWE smackdown, is kind of how he looks, uh, like he's a wrestler. And, uh, you know, there, there may be something concerning about that as well. The Bible doesn't tell us every drawing I've ever seen in every kid's Bible of Samson. He looks like he lives in the gym and eats steroids three meals a day. And I think that totally misses the point. We're about to see here that I think we've totally read this story wrong. Because the story of Samson is that he has supernatural strength. When you see Samson kill a lion, for instance, you're not supposed to say, good thing he works out six days a week and is on a paleo diet because that enables him. You're supposed to say, isn't God powerful? I think Samson probably looks a lot more like me. Because then you would say, if that guy can lift more than 25 pounds, surely God is in this place. And so that, I think Samson is probably scrawny, but I have no proof of that, and we don't know. That, that, the, the designer of that action figure, his guess, is as good as mine. But my bigger, bigger concern is not uh, Scandinavian wrestler Samson. My, my, my bigger concern is this, that this Samson action figure Uh, well, he just reveals our typical approach to the Bible. We typically read stories of people doing great things, especially in the Old Testament, and we look for these super sort of heroic individuals, and then we retell their story 
all that they did right, um, and then we look to that for inspiration. And there's certainly something to be learned from people that trust the Lord in the Old Testament, and Samson's no uh, exception there. But when we look at the story of Samson and see how he functions in the overall story of God, I think we're going to realize that uh, maybe he functions in a way that we weren't anticipating. See, the Bible is one story, and it is the story of God. And God actively works through various individuals throughout the story, but he is the one who is always the center and the hero of the story. And when we look at chapter 13 today, and we see the trajectory of what's happening in the life of Samson, I I think what we're going to find uh, is that, well, the Samson story really isn't about Samson after all. It's about what God is doing. So we're going to look, we're going to read the whole chapter, but I'm going to start with verses 1 through 7, and we'll work our way through in chunks. So this is verses 1 through 7, Judges 13, from God's holy word. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing but uh, eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the land of the Philistines, from the hand of the Philistines, rather. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the days of his death. This first section is about God sending a Savior. Kind of three narrative points here. It starts with God is sending a Savior. Now, why do I say that? Well, verse 5, that's what the author tells us, is that the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. He's coming to begin to save And one who saves is a savior. The angel of the Lord has come to announce that someone is coming to save from the Philistines. Why is this? Well, because Israel needs saving. They are in deep trouble. Now, if you've been tracking with us through this whole book, uh, we've gone through multiple judges. This is the last judge in the book. We have four chapters devoted to him, and then we have two closing sections about how bad things really were in Israel. But what we have found is that in each of these 
uh, sections where we meet a judge who is not someone in a black robe making uh, judgments in a courtroom, but is a, like, kind of like a military leader that rescues God pe- God's people. What we found is that there's a repeated cycle in this book, and it looks like this. Israel serves the Lord, and then Israel falls into sin and idolatry. It happens repeatedly in the book of Judges. When that happens, God sends in an enemy, in this case the Philistines, and oppresses Israel until Israel gets to the point where they cry out to the Lord for help. God raises up a judge who is this leader, kind of military individual to rescue the people. Israel is delivered from their enemy, and they serve the Lord again for some amount of time. And then they go back and worship idols again, and the whole process goes over and over. The only thing is, each time it goes around, it's more like a corkscrew, because each time it goes around, it gets worse and darker and deeper, and we see that here. There's something different here with Samson. Uh, we haven't met his name yet, but it, we're going to find out at the end of the passage. This is all about Samson. Uh, there's something different here. We learn a couple of things. First of all, this is the longest that Israel has ever been oppressed, so this section is is oppressed. It says here for 40 years they've been oppressed. We've seen nothing like that in the book of Judges where a foreign nation where they've been worshiping that God, the gods of that nation, and that nation comes in and rules over them, oppressing them, harming them for 40 years. That is very different than what we have read. It shows how dark things have gotten that they're in this kind of season of suffering. And secondly, we find that in every other passage we've looked at, Israel has cried out to the Lord. There's no crying out here. There's no asking for God's help. This is a whole generation of idolaters living under the the thumb of the Philistines. At this point, they're controlled by the Philistines and entirely enmeshed in the Philistines' life such that we don't hear anything about the people of God saying, enough! No one is asking for rescue. And that's what stands out about this passage because this has proved true throughout the book. But now, no one is crying out for help. One commentator said, Israel as a nation has almost ceased to exist at this point. It's happened so many times repeatedly that now they're not even asking for help. But yet, God acts. And that's the whole point of this chapter, is that God Acts. Notice in verse 1 it says the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines 40 years. The next thing we read is in verse 3. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her. So the Lord gave them into judgment. But then the next thing, that Israel doesn't do anything. The next thing we get in the narrative is, and God sends the announcement that a deliverer is coming to this woman. Judges 13 isn't so much an introduction to Samson, the strong man. It's an introduction to how God intervenes in Israel's darkest hour. No one's asking for help, but God, by pure grace, is coming to help. And this, this is the whole arc of the story of the Bible. This is the whole plot line. We have creation, then we have rebellion and fall with Adam and Eve, then we have a promise that God will redeem, and for years and years and years we see God acting for his people. God pushing back the darkness on his way to making all things new. So we see here what we see repeatedly in the Bible. And one of my burdens, a primary burden of this, of this sermon today, we're not going to drill down into a lot of 
specifics about what we need to do. There's a place for that, and plenty of texts lend itself to that. And in the Samson story, we will look at what we need to do at points. But today, my big, my big goal is that we just see this is about God at work, that we get, that we really get this, that the Bible is one story that the story is about God and that the center of the story is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ who dies and is buried and raised on the third day and rules and reigns from the right hand of God. This is the story of the Bible. And all of these various characters are just playing their role in telling the story of God. And the story of God is this, when no one's even asking... He's coming to bring initiative to deliver people that don't deserve it. And that's good news because no one in this room deserves it. And he's been merciful and kind to us. And we must read the Bible that way. We can laugh about an action figure and that's fine. But we dare not make it a moral tale about individuals and their heroics. It's a story of God, the ultimate hero who brings life from death. Now, he does something very different in this passage. In, in else, elsewhere in the book of Judges, God always taps someone on the shoulders, basically, and says, you're going to be a deliverer. In here, he doesn't tap anybody on the shoulders and say, you're going to be a deliverer. He creates one out of scratch. He makes a deliverer, and he announces with this unusual, we haven't seen anything like this in Judges, angelic announcements of A miraculous conception for a barren woman will have a baby. The promise that this child is unique and a wondrous sign at the end of the chapter. We're going to see this angel go up in fire and smoke. An amazing sign that's going to happen at the end of the chapter. So we, we read this and we go, wow, God is, we've read the book of Judges. He's never done anything like this. There's not angelic announcements. There's not promises. Watch what you're eating and you know, drinking because this one's going to be a Nazarite and amazing. There's none of that. And so we're left thinking, wow, what is God up to? What is God going to do now? Things are going to be different. And when this guy gets on the scene, we're left thinking, And then we get to chapter 14, and Samson starts doing a few cool things, and then we focus on Samson and miss the point of the story. It's about God. Dale Davis said this, the commentator about interpreting this passage. He says, there is one danger here. Samson is such a rollicking, entertaining, break-the-mold fellow that we may become preoccupied with him. We must not allow our focus on the Savior God raises up to eclipse the God who saves. Therefore, we want to develop the teaching of Judges 13 in terms of what Yahweh, that's God's name, in terms of what Yahweh is doing, his covenant name. Well, what is God doing? God is coming at a bad season in Israel's life to bring uh, rescue for them. Look, Look at what we find under for 40 years, they've been under the Philistine rule. And then God comes to this woman. We don't even get her name. Now, we do get her husband's name, but we don't get her name. And perhaps that's a literary uh, point to really point us that the story is ultimately about God. She's nameless in this, and actually she performs much better than her husband throughout this story we're going to see. She does really well trusting the Lord, her husband not so much. But nonetheless, what we see here is that, uh, that, she is, that, that God is coming to a barren people, Israel. They're not producing fruit. They're worshiping idols. He, he comes to a barren woman who represents Israel, and he's going to bring life 
out of barrenness. Salvation in the Bible, rescue in the Bible, it always comes when God's people are, when the odds are stacked against us. And in this case, they're impossible odds, and that's where God does his work. Why does God always bring rescue when the odds are stacked against us? Because God wants to crush the illusion. He wants to crush the delusion that we somehow can rescue ourselves. He wants us to sense our need for him to be the rescuer. And that's exactly what this story is about. God acts uniquely in the Samson narrative. He announces his birth before he's born. He calls him also to be a Nazarite. We saw that. He will be a Nazarite, verse 3, he will, I'm sorry, verse uh, 5. He'll be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And actually, it's going to start now because she's not supposed to drink any uh, fruit of the vine. She's not supposed to drink wine prior to his birth. This wasn't just, you know, wow, they had real insight into prenatal care back in the day, didn't they? That's not what this is about. He's called to be a Nazarite, it says. Now, a Nazarite, in the book of Numbers, chapter 6, we find out a Nazarite uh, was someone who took a vow. A Nazarite Nazarite vow was a vow you took for a temporary time when you really needed the Lord. You're dependent on him. You wanted to recognize you're dependent on him, and you took this vow. And the way that might relate a little bit today, uh, loosely, would be with fasting. It's a time where I go without something to recognize my need for the Lord and pray. So you, you took this vow. And three stipulations to the vow. Number one, you weren't supposed to drink uh, of anything from the vine, alcoholic or non-alcoholic. Uh, second, you weren't supposed to cut your hair during the vow. And third, you weren't supposed to touch any corpses, anything dead, any bodies. You weren't supposed to touch them. It was a temporary vow. But Samson is called to live that his whole life. He will be a Nazarite from the womb, it says, to the day of his death, verse 7. So his whole life he's going to live this way. What's this about? He's going to come as a deliverer. He's called to live a consecrated life, a separated life to God, recognizing his whole life that he's not just doing this for a little while, while he really needs God. Israel needs God desperately, so he's going to live his whole life as a Nazarite, representing them as one who is in need of God. So God is sending a Savior. We know he's going to be consecrated, and our hopes are high if we've been reading the whole book of Judges. Here's the second section, verses 8 through 16. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, And the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the man ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now, when your words come true, What is to be the child's manner of life, and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink, or eat anything, uh, any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, Please, let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, 
then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. So if the first section's about God is sending a savior, I think this section about, is about God isn't sending any answers. God's sending a savior, but he's not sending answers. Manoah wants answers. He prays in verse 8 that the, the man who he's assuming is a prophet, that he would return and teach them what to do with this child. I mean, Manoah understands what his wife said, but he's got some questions for this guy. He needs further instruction. And God listens. Verse 9 says God listens to him, and he is responsive. God answers the prayer, and the angel shows up again to the wife. She runs and gets her husband. And when her husband comes, he asks very good questions, verse 12, reasonable questions. Verse 12, he asks, when your words come true, he's evidently leaning in. We believe we are going to conceive. There's a special calling on this kid. What is to be the child's manner of life? How are we to raise him? What's he to do? What's he to be about? What are the guidelines for him? And what is his mission? Why are we being chosen for this? What's going to happen with uh, our uh, son? Why are you sending him? Why are you doing all of this? Why is we getting this announcement ahead of time? What is all of this about? He needs more information, but God isn't sending any answers. He's simply called to trust God acts by grace for our good, and he often doesn't explain his ways. We're simply called to trust that God is faithful to fulfill his grand plan. He wants guidelines. He needs some more direction, he thinks. But God shows us that he's not answering those questions I love Manoah that he's not stuck. He's not just going to be give up when he says, you know, he says, what, what's his manner of life? All these questions. He said, just do what I told your wife. That's what he says in verse 14. Of all that I told the woman, let her be careful. So just do what I said. I'm, there's no new news here. Nothing else to say. Just do what you were told. Uh, but Manoah, he's not, he's not going for that. And so what he says in verse 15 is, please let us detain you uh, and prepare a young goat for you. So he doesn't say, hey, why don't we have dinner and let's get to know one another. And then he'll like, you know, secretly toss in a few questions to find out about this son and his mission and all that. He says, let me hold you against your will. That's what detain, I think, would mean here. Let me hold you against your will and feed you a goat because I've got more questions. And and, and what the angel says to him is, I'm not eating your goat. But if you've got a goat to offer, here's what you should be doing. You shouldn't be schmoozing me over a goat meal and trying to get me to divulge information that you want. What you should be doing is worshiping God. You should take that goat and offer it as a burnt offering. What's called for when you get a message like this from God is not some kind of demand that you get more information, but that you express gratitude and that you worship. So offer it up as a burnt offering offering. The right response to God's grace is not getting more info. It's to worship and be grateful. And I think that's for some of us here today. We think we just need more info and the Lord has something else for us in mind.
Let's look at the last section, verses 17 through 25. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name? Seeing it is wonderful. So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, we shall surely die, for we've seen God. But his wife said to him, "Uh, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands or shown us all these things or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir Samson in Mahanadon between Zorah and Eshtel. God is sending a Savior. God isn't answering questions. God is wonderful. That's how this section ends. God is wonderful. You know, it's interesting. Manoah says, I need to ask this guy questions. Lord, send him back. So why did the Lord send the angel back if he never intended to give any new information, if he only intended to say, what I told you before, just do that, why would God send him back? Because Manoah needed something better than information. He needed a revelation of God. That's what he needed. Manoah needs most, not guidelines, not regulations, not an instruction manual, That's not what God needs. I mean, what Manoah needs. Manoah needs a vision of God. This is what he needs at this time. And so he says, what is your name? And he, he sort of gives a revelation of what God is, who God is. He says, my name is wonderful. The NIV translates that verse 18 this way. Why do you ask my name? The angel says, it is beyond understanding. It is too wonderful for a human to grasp. The angel represents God. And so this is something too wonderful for you to even grasp. Uh, and, and then it says, after that, it says that, uh, that, the, uh, uh, the, 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 that the Lord, the one who works wonders. He says that, so Manoah took the young goat, verse 19, uh, to the one who works wonders wonders. To the Lord, the one who works wonders. He says, my name is wonderful. I work wonders that you cannot even begin to understand. So Manoah hears the grace of God. Manoah receives a promise from God. Manoah wants uh, rules and regulations. Manoah wants to manage the process, which is not necessarily bad. He wants to manage the process. And God says to him, you don't need that. You need to step back and be in awe of the God of wonders, and you need to worship with thanksgiving. That's what needs to happen. How many of us are facing complex circumstances? How many of us are looking to uncertain futures, decisions that are in someone else's hand, outside of our hand? 
How many of us are waiting for something to materialize or for a solution or for something uh, to resolve itself? How many of us are there and we're thinking, if I just had this information, if this person would just do that, if that person would just do this, if the circumstance would just, and we think our whole future is based upon some human solution, that if this person does that, if that situation changes, then, then we'll be okay. And God is saying, there's all kinds of unanswered uh, questions that you have. And what you need is not tactical advice. What you need is a revelation that God is a God of wonders, that God takes initiative to save, that God is faithful to his word, that God is amazing and beyond your ability to understand. You don't need to manage the situation. You need your face to the ground in worship of the God who is in control of your life. I'm so much like Manoah. Hey, God, I just give me, give me some more information, then I can fix it. And that's the problem. That I want to fix it when I should be in awe of the God who controls everything. Well, his name is not only wonderful, he not only does the Lord who does wondrous acts, then there's this amazing thing, which is just a revelation of God again to Manoah, they, they burned the young goat in a burnt offering to the Lord, offering it to the Lord. And as soon as the fire goes up from the goat, the man of God like jumps in the flame and burns up with it. And when that happens, they're on their faces worshiping the Lord. I mean, they're on their faces going, wow, this is incredible. And then what does he say to his wife? We're going to die. We're going to die. Why are we going to die? Well, because we've seen God. He realized they had a face-to-face encounter with, with the divine power through this angel of the Lord. And his, his, his sentiment is right. To encounter God uh, is, and to live is, is amazing. He should have probably died. But God is gracious and merciful. And his wife just so sets him straight. The way the text is written, it is like she just really gives reasonable advice to him in the moment. He's panicking. And she just tells him, okay, think about this. And I could make a whole point on husbands listen to your wives, but I don't think it's the main point of the text, but it's there. So what does she say? Okay, think about it, dear. Think about it. Would God really accept our offering and then kill us? Would God send on someone to give us this message and then kill us? Would God say he's going to bring this amazing person who's going to fight off the Philistines and then just kill us? Does that make any sense? We don't get his response, but the next verse is, and she conceived and had a baby uh, named Samson. So it's really, it's great the way the Lord, uh, the way the Lord worked that. We don't even know her name, but uh, she comes out looking a lot better than Manoah, whose name we do know. And then the chapter ends with, and the woman bore a son, uh, the young man grew, the Lord blessed him, the Lord blessed uh, Samson, and the spirit of the Lord began to stir Samson, and that's where we end. So the chapter starts barren people bearing no fruit under the thumb of the Philistines worshiping idols. A barren woman who is nameless and has no children. It ends with a deliverer's coming to rescue Israel, and the woman is, gives birth to this deliverer. How do we 
apply this passage. Let me make a couple of comments about what's going to happen without getting into any detail. What's going to happen in Samson's life? We end chapter 13 ready to go. We got angels of the Lord burning up in fires. We got people thinking they're going to die. We got the Spirit of God stirring Samuel. Yes, we've got this whole angelic announcement different than any judge. So God is on the move. We get this feeling something amazing is about to happen. And yet, what we're going to find is grief over wasted potential. Because Samson isn't going to deliver. He isn't going to deliver. One commentator, Daniel Block, said, no other deliverer in the book of Judges matches Samson's potential. Despite all his advantages and the special attention, Samson accomplishes less on behalf of his people than any of his predecessors. The book of Judges shows the cyclical failure of Israel. They, they're chosen by God. They're saved by God. They're directed by God. They're provided for by God. They're protected by God. They're given this land by God, rescued out of slavery, given this land by God so that they can show the world what God is like, so that they can be a light in the darkness. And they get in the land and they start living in the dark, just like their neighbors, worshiping the gods of their neighbors. They lose all their distinction and they become syncretistic, taking a belief in Yahweh and a belief in the idols of the age and blending them together and compromising their faith. That they, they, they don't live up to their calling and that's exactly what Samson is going to do. He's given every spiritual advantage and yet what we're going to find as soon as we get in the text is that Samson is all about Samson, not about God's calling or God's people at all and it makes us long for a true savior the true savior. I mean, the first thing, without going into much detail, the first thing you learn about Samson in chapter 14, he's chasing Philistine women, a Philistine woman. It's not that God was just opposed to uh, foreign women, but in the Old Testament, foreign women always mean foreign gods. So out of the chute, Samson's a mess. We don't get 10 verses into chapter 14 until Samson has broken two of the three Nazarite vows. The third vow will be broken in the Delilah escapade when his hair is cut at the end. And we're just left thinking, oh, this is it, Lord. And it doesn't happen. And what happens after this? Well, then we get kings. So we think Saul, that's it. David, that's it. But they all are human. They all fail. And they all point us in the direction of the one true Savior that we need. I mean, Samson has a very limited calling as a Savior. The quote is, he will begin to save Israel from the land of the Philistines. But see, Samson's going to be about himself. Samson's about lust. Samson's about women. Samson's about anger. Samson's about revenge. That's what we find out about this guy as we get going. And as we see, he's not about saving his people. And yet that is the purpose of God, that we might be saved to be a light to the world. And this story leaves us longing for the one who will come with selfless love, not acting on his own behalf, but laying down his life for us. Chapter 13 ends on this high note with all this fanfare. This judge who's different than all the judges. And we think the tide is turning. But what we find is we're still waiting for the true leader. 
of Israel, the true shepherd, the true king, the true judge, the true ruler, the one who will come and rule over us with grace and truth, the one who is the true and greater Samson, the judge who will come for us. And and that happens about 1,100 years or so after Samson. Then the promised one does arrive. And, And the coming of the promised one, it really mirrors this chapter doesn't it? There's there's details in this chapter that really point forward to the ultimate Savior. I mean, 1,100 years later, there's going to be another angelic pronouncement. There's going to be another miraculous birth, not just someone that was barren who conceived, but someone who conceived as a virgin, miraculously, Mary, There's going to come another promise, and it's going to be a much greater promise than this. This promise is he will begin to save you from the Philistines. But the angel is going to appear to Joseph in Matthew 121, and this is the greater promise. You shall call his name Jesus, the angel says, for he shall save his people from their sins. This is the greatest need. This is the need of Israel. This is the need of Samson. There's only one deliverer that didn't need to personally be delivered. There was only one Savior that would come that didn't personally need saving because of his sin, and that's the Lord Jesus. The Israel, what they really need here is not just the Philistines off their back. They don't just need strength from the enemy out there. They need power over the enemy in here, the power of sin which entangles our hearts, which animates Samson so that even the greatest biblical characters like Samson, David, Moses, pick your hero, even the greatest one are mixed bags with mixed motives. None of them are worthy of our pure emulation. Only the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who comes to rescue us. This passage shows us that salvation comes from God alone. But even in this glorious calling, all human saviors fail. Your parents will fail. Your kids will fail. Your boss will fail. Every president will fail to bring freedom for all. Your counselor will fail. Your pastor will fail. No one can change a heart and bring life where there is no life. No one can come to the barren and bear fruit except God himself. That's what we see in this passage. We need God to move, and yet when he moves through a human savior, there is something lacking. We need God to move through a divine savior. That's where the passage points us. And it calls all of us. We all need rescue in some way today. Some of us need to be rescued from emotional bondage, the bondage of various sins. Some of us need physical, material rescue and help. Some of us need relational rescue in our lives. And if you don't, just hang on. Just keep coming. You will in a few weeks or a few months. Everybody's got a 911 at some point in their life. We're all there. And the problem is we look to human saviors And give me information and give me solutions. And it's not that information's uh, forbidden. It's just our ultimate hope cannot be in anything we can learn unless what we can learn is Jesus. We need him. And the word for all of us today, I know this is 30,000 foot. This isn't in the nitty gritty uh, of life. There'll be more of that. But this is 30,000 foot. 
to say wherever you are today, if you've never met Christ, never had your sins forgiven, you need to cry out for rescue and turn from your sin, turn to Christ and ask him to forgive you and give you new life. If you are a Christian, you need to turn to Christ and rescue. We're always turning to the Savior. We're always leaning on him because our temptation is to lean somewhere else. And so we need a fresh call to lean on him. And this is what God calls us to do today. You don't need information. You need awe. You don't need a strategy first and foremost. You need gratitude and looking to God in surrender and worship. You don't need this person to do that or that situation over here or that phone call to happen or that. No, no. You need Jesus. You need a revelation of his power and his grace and his mercy towards you. And simply cry out and ask him to come. It sounds simple. It sounds simple. But that's because we often complicate things. Most problems are far simpler. Even complex ones. The, the root response is far simpler than most of us even turn to. It's, it's Christ. It's Christ. Let's express that to him now. And lean in to him. What might God have for you? today? What might God want to do in you today? What might God want to do through you? Not out there with your circumstances. He'll change those too, perhaps. Not out there with your circumstances. What does God want to do in you to change you, to meet you as your only Savior today? Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.